Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we will discuss a practical guide on the lifestyle of planning for art collections. By way of background, this episode will aim to address the current global art market, including the latest trends, buying habits, and predictions. It will also discuss special considerations from due diligence to legal risks and liquidity needs that collectors and their fiduciary advisors should undertake when managing, dispersing, and caring for artworks. Podcast. Today, we're privileged to hear from Sherry Cohn, who's the Global Head of Fiduciary Client Group at Sotheby's and is based in New York. Just by way of background, Sherry joined Sotheby's in 2023 as the Senior Vice President and the Global Head of the Fiduciary Client Group. She's responsible for leading the New York, London, and European teams, working in close collaboration with the entire Sotheby's Global Business Development Team and assist lawyers, bankers, family offices, and fiduciaries in planning for the life cycle of their clients' art collections through Sotheby's broad range of services. Sherry's a dual qualified attorney in New York, as well as the solicitor in the United Kingdom. Prior to joining Sotheby's, Sherry was head of business development of North America at Bonhams. Before working in the auction industry, Sherry served as a chief underwriting counsel at Aris, an A-rated art title insurance company, as well as for the New York State Agency helping claimants to recover property which was lost, looted, or sold under duress due, due to Nazi persecution. She started her career at Jones Day and worked on litigation, arbitration, art law, and corporate matters. Today, Sherry will be speaking on a, a practical guide on the life cycle of planning for art collections. And with that introduction, I will now turn the program over to Sherry. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. Unfortunately, my colleague Kimberly couldn't make it, so bear with me as, as we take you through the slides. So let's start. Here's kind of our roadmap of where we're going to go, talking about market trends, really the due diligence and lifetime of owning art, and then we'll end on some issues uh, addressing estate administration. So what is happening in the art market? I think it's always good to start as a look back and think about what happened. Um, we had sales in November, in May, and then some sales in London in June, thinking about at auction. So a lot of art has been traded, maybe not as much as in the previous year. Reports are that it's down anywhere from 14, 18, 23% or flat, depending upon whose numbers you're looking at. But just in June at London, uh, in our Sotheby's sale, we sold um, this beautiful Klimt girl with a fan painting for 108 million. So that was the most expensive work ever traded in Europe at public auction. So that's a pretty phenomenal result. So it's really hard to say that we're in a downturn or a correction. So there is kind of this mixed messaging. Um, in New York, there were phenomenal blue chip works. Again, another Klimt sold at Sotheby's in the $53 million range, a gorgeous Rousseau at Christie's. Um, and then, of course, the single owner estate sales really shined and kind of delivered, maybe not as phenomenal as in past years, but they certainly hit within the mid-estimate um, mid range. 
For confident buyers, we would say um, it's new opportunities. Money is not cheap, as Jonathan knows. There's higher interest rates. Um, but if you're a seller, you're a seller, and that is true. I would say there's definitely been a flight to quality. And when things are priced right, sort of conservatively, they're doing, they're doing well. There's not this like frenetic bidding. It's a bit more quiet. Um, in sort of the non-art world, jewelry is really also very strong. Christie's had the Horton sale over $200 million, which was the largest, most expensive jewelry sale ever. There's been some PR controversy about that you can read about in terms of um, provenance. Also at Sotheby's, we uh, were very privileged to, tell, to sell two gorgeously colored stones, a pink diamond and a ruby, each selling for about $35 million other amazing world records that, that you can uh, dig into. So what are the trends? What does this mean in terms of predictions? Um, something that Sotheby's commissioned with Art Tactic that I think is, is key if you're very keen to learn more about the art market was a study um, looking at data uh, for trading of art at the million dollar mark. And I think it's the first study of this published and it looked at sales results from Christie's, Phillips, and Sotheby's at auction, and also Sotheby's private sales, which is kind of unique. And that's available for download. If any of you are interested, you can reach out to me. I'm happy to send you a copy of that. Um, not surprisingly, or maybe surprisingly to you, this million dollar mark, it's only about 4% of the volume traded, uh, but 74% of the total. And that's the kind of things we think about. Um, when we're looking at, at what's really trading. The biggest category was in the one to $5 million range, but the biggest growth was over the $20 million price band. And that accounted for about 45%, which we, we kind of call trophy art. In terms of who's bidding, Asian bidders are certainly making themselves known. They're up about 32%. And they're most active in the Chinese works of art and paintings category. Um, in terms of the breakdown, millenniums are getting in there more, 16% in, in 22 in terms of bids. The Gen X, about 32%. Baby, baby boomers are hanging in there. They're about 40% of our bids down from 48%. So they're totally not irrelevant to the market, but certainly diminishing in terms of their impact. Um, and then I would just say the fastest growing category is these artists born after 1977. Um, and then Old Masters is sort of making a comeback in terms of like the trophy 20 plus market. Of course, Old Masters are rare and you can't get them anymore. In terms of predictions, I would say, you know, art is a collecting category that's driven by passion. A Goldman Sachs report recently said that 71% of all buy art for the passion, about 39% buy because it's uncorrelated historically to the rest of their portfolio and 19% are buying for um, trophy. Another sort of area to watch is sort of surrealist and women. If you combine them together, you're actually sort of at the peak of what artists want or collectors want. Um, I think another interesting fact is that the sort of evolution of the auction house model is really continuing post COVID. And um, two things I'll say about that one, the luxury resale category is really strong. We're not talking retail, we're talking resale. In 22, it was about a $15 billion market, and that's grown, or we expect it to grow 3x by 25 to just under 50 billion. So that's really an area to watch. 
one more thing that, you know, when you think about the next kind of collector, what drives them, it's really kind of like the passion that speaks to them, whether it's sneakers or the wet paint, really contemporary art, luxury, sustainability, who's creating it. I think that's all really important, um, important to know. Last fact on this slide, which is going to blow your minds, is that about 92% of our bids were online. So we're still having live sales and we're still doing online sales, but most people are actually doing, um, you know, the bidding on their, their, their mobile devices or whatnot. And also, you know, NFTs are still around. So let's transition to talk about the due diligence of art and what you're thinking about art as you're collecting in your lifetime. Um, it's important to think about this legacy. Art is not just something that you have to deal with as a fiduciary in the state. It's something that wealth managers and advisors, you should be thinking about holistically in your client's portfolio. And it's, it's a really unique asset that requires special expertise. So the first thing is sort of like asking questions, like nailing down the who, what, when, where of a collection during lifetime is extremely important because the person that put the collection together often has the most relevant information and all of the sort of the nuances that you need. So starting with the collection is very important. Why did you collect? What is your passion? What's the ultimate plan? How do you live, you know, with your art? If you're a, purely an investor, it might all be in storage. You might not see, see it. If you're very passionate, it might be, you know, you have a salon style kind of home, which is, you know, something I, <laughs> I wish to achieve one day. Um, what do you want to keep with your children want to keep often, you know, the generational gap, you don't have the same tastes as your, as your parents. And that's totally normal. Um, something else to think about is document retention. It's very important to keep those bills of sale as much as possible. Um, photographs can be helpful when a, a price is being, um, a work is being priced and determining its provenance is really key. So keep all that together, exhibition, loan agreements, whatnot. If you think about like a conceptual artist like Dan Flavin that's, you know, does the, the light bulbs, if you don't have the certificate of authenticity, it's really just light bulbs. And that can mean a very big swing in valuations. Um, this can have a tremendous impact on value. I love these two examples that we have, one of the spotted dish, uh, which turned out to be a very important um, Chinese dish from the 1700s that sold for about a million dollars in 2016. And we had received a call for fair market value it, um, for an estate tax appraisal. And it had been sort of treated as sort of a nothing. And then the team spotted it, um, pun intended, and, and we were able to sell it for such a top price. Likewise, this spotted owl by um, Picasso was used as sort of a doorstop in a kid's um, room where, you know, balls were being thrown around and we sold it for $4 million, a world record for a, a work of that type. And it had been valued for about 20K. So it's really important to know what you have and to pass that information to the next gen. Let's talk now about appraisals. The important thing with appraisals is to really understand the purpose for the use and to make sure that you're getting the right kind of valuation. So I've laid out here the different kinds, whether it's for income tax, fair market value, gift tax, fair market value, estate tax, fair market value, and of course, insurance, the highest value uh, possible, which is retail replacement value. The FMV value is an IRS definition, um, buyer and seller having uh, all of the same information, neither being under compulsion to sell, um, and it's sort of that price of, of willing exchange. And we look at when we're doing the comparables, um, we look at comparables of things sold, 
at auction. If not at auction, you would look to uh, retail uh, what you would get from, from, let's say, a gallery or whatnot. And then retail replacement, which is the insurance value, is like if you had to go out tomorrow and 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 find a painting of the setting. We know art is unique and, and rare, and that that price tends to be about 20, 20, 30 percent higher. Um, digging in a little bit more to scrutiny and um, appraisals. I mean, there's two cases that really kind of define this. The first being publicer versus commission, which addressed the fair market value and buyer's premium. And the case found that sales prices uh, established FMB, not the proceeds received to the seller, which is really important. So the buyer's premium is a component of the purchase price and included when calculating uh, the FMB. And then the other case we like to think about when doing uh, appraisals, especially in a estate or a context, is the Newberger case from 2015. And that talked about the impact of subsequent sales. And this was um, Mrs. Newberger's estate. Uh, the court found that allegedly underreported the value of the artwork um, because she died around the time of the global recession. And so at that time, the values were uh, depressed, and then they actually ended up selling the work in mid um, when the art market had rebo rebounded, and um, the prices was two times. So it's an interesting um, paradigm to think about when you are contemplating any sales as part of an estate sort of plan. The best way forward for an appraisal is to use the combined appraised values for things that you might be keeping and any sales values. That's the, you know, the bulletproof way to get above any uh, scrutiny from the IRS. And then I'll just say in terms of NFTs, the Department of Treasury and IRS are currently in the process of seeking guidance on the tax treatment and whether or not NFTs should be treated as collectibles under Section 408M or sort of an asset. And that is critical. I mean, one of the ways they're looking at it is through the look-through analysis. So what really is the essence of the NFT? Is it the associated right with it or is it like an asset? And the reason that that's important is because it'll affect the capital uh, gains tax treatment, whether it's 15% or 28%. So TBD on that. Um, one more thing about buyer's premium, it, it can be a deductible expense if it's allowable in the jurisdiction under which the estate is being administered. Um, and also if it's sort of written into the will and the trust that the art must be sold or it's necessary to pay the decedent's uh, debt. So that's an important factor to think about. One more thing I'll say, because this has come up a lot, is blockage discount. It's important to think about when you're getting the appraisal, is there any applicable discount? If it's an artist estate, often that comes into play if, you know, the artist had a lot of works. And we're not just talking about works by the same artist, but works of the same type. So paintings versus works on paper. And then if there's an ownership split, there could also be making a case for a discount. It's very fact dependent, so be careful. Um, we've seen discounts anywhere from 10% to 37% to up to 80%. So it really runs the gamut. Um, and there's been a lot of litigation about this. You can look up cases involving Georgia O'Keeffe, uh, de Kooning's daughter, Lisa, David Smith, um, and a lot of other important things. So one more thing I'll say about appraisals before we, we, uh, we talk about some fun examples is that the IRS really wants to see that you have engaged a qualified appraiser 
to create a qualified appraisal. And I know that's very circular. I mean, one other thing to think about is USPAP. And so make sure that the appraiser that you're working with is USPAP qualified, and that is the standard that the IRS relies on. And USPAP stands for the Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. So let's talk about some fun examples because the market is not static. It's actually quite many sub-markets in the art market. And here's some fun examples of when the prices have actually exploded. I'm sure you all recognize um, this Basquiat picture um, that just kind of flew. It was sold um, in 1984 for just under $20,000. And then in 2017, if you can believe it, for $110 million, that was uh, quite the world record. So that's that's a great return on your investment. I'm sure Jonathan would agree with that. Um, abstract expressionist female artists are also on the run now doing fantastic at market. This Beautiful Helen Frankenthaler um, traded for just around over 800,000 K in 2011. And then uh, we had the privilege of selling it in 2020 for just under 8 million. So you can see how important it is to update your appraisals if you're doing anything with the art. I mean, the rule of thumb is every anywhere from one to five years, and it really depends on what the kind of um, material it is that you're looking at. And there's lots of factors that can impact what's happening with, with an artist's market. Insurance. Um, of course, insurance is very important when you're talking about art. It's one of our most um, expensive things that we do here at Sotheby's, and it's very important that, that your art is properly insured. I'm always shocked when I come across a major collection that isn't fully insured. So um, the Steve Wynn story of Picasso's, uh, this famous Picasso is kind of fun to look about because this is not the norm of what happens. Um, in 1997, of course, the casino magnet um, Steve Wynn purchased this beautiful picture for about $50 million. And then in October of uh, 2006, he told a group of his friends, famous friends, um, that he had sold, sort of bragging that he'd sold the work for $135 million. 39 million, excuse me, to Steve Cohen, which at that time would have been, you know, the most expensive artwork ever sold. He's showing it off. He, you know, gets his elbow through the canvas, making a tear. The cost of the restoration was about 90K. The painting was then reevaluated for appraisal at 85 million. He filed a claim, was able to recover 54 million. Of course, the in insurers um, thought there's litigation and so forth. End of the story, the guy is very lucky. A few years later, he still sells it to Cohen, but even for a higher price at 155 million. That is not the norm um, of what happens, but it shows you how difficult art is and you really have to know what you're doing and to make sure that your art is stored in safe conditions. And that might be uh, you know, far away from the wall. So it's, it's safe from children and elbows and all sorts of other things. Um, it's all too common, I would say, also, we're talking about safety in the state situation that, you know, your, your painting gets legs or whatnot, or your jewelry walks away, make sure that that doesn't happen too. Oops, let's talk a little bit about authentication, because when we're thinking about due diligence of art, um, and generally speaking about, you know, whether things are, are right, you know, there's certain categories, it can be in contemporary, but most often, old masters, impressionist, and whatnot. Um, in Europe, this authentication process is called the Duat Morale. We don't quite have the same standard here in the U.S. We do have um, legislation called VERA, but it doesn't go quite as far. I would say the Marc Chagall Committee is a great example of when to be cautious. All works need to go to Paris for inspection, so you can imagine the logistics of sending things and how that works. 
auction houses and others sort of in the know can help you sort of navigate that process. You have to sign away your life and sort of a waiver saying, you know, you understand the process for review. Unfortunately, if the committee does not think that the work is right, they could destroy it. So that's very much a calculated risk that you should think through. I'll just say a couple words about the Simon Whelan um, Anti-Warhol Foundation case, that this is sort of the horror story of when things started to go wrong about litigation and authentication. The story goes that the Warhol Foundation spent about $7 million in legal fees, good for the lawyers, really bad for the art market in the sense that after that, there was sort of this snowball of how nobody really wanted to authenticate works. Um, one more horror case while we're on it, back to Basquiat, I couldn't skip, I couldn't skip this one, but um, there was an exhibition in Orlando just um, this past year of June where um, I find the name quite ironic. The show was called Heroes and Monsters, and unfortunately, all of the work was fake. And so there's been a lot of brouhaha sort of after the fact. Um, I will say when Basquiat's father was alive, he was sort of controlling uh, the authentication. Basquiat has two sisters who have had a limited role in reviewing uh, the works. And like other, um, you know, there's a catalog raisonne going ahead. If there isn't an expert in the market, I think that um, another kind of way to check to see if a work is right is to see if it's in the literature. But back to the Orlando case, the fallout has really been that the museum from the American Alliance of Museums has been placed on probation, which is very rare, um, an unfortunate move. The museum has fired the director and litigation um, has ensued. So it's not a great situation. So restricted materials is another sort of aspect of this due diligence review. I'm sure you may be familiar with the Sonnebank case, which happened in 2012. It's still quite relevant today. And the central question in the case is, what is the value of an object that contains a restricted material, such as an endangered species here in the Rauschenberg, you see the, um, the bald eagle, but other restricted materials that might be in art objects includes ivory, rosewood, or other materials that, that violate um, CITES. So the IRS continues to take quite the outlandish position that if there is a market anywhere, even on a listed market, and this kind of stems, there was an old case that dealt with cocaine, um, for that material, even if it's black and illegal, then that's a legitimate way to price. So. What happened in this case is that the estate initially valued it at zero because you can't trade it. It's got this bald eagle that's now illegal to sell. The IRS appraisers at first came back and saying, nope, it's 15 million. Um, the art panel, the IRS art panel got involved, which is a special group of private um, art market people that sort of volunteer and work with the IRS appraisal services if there's a tax audit. And there's work over 50K, which is actually quite a low threshold. But anyhow, the art panel got involved and they raised the estimate to say it was, no, this is a, a masterpiece. It should be 65 million, arguing regardless of the prohibitions on selling or transferring bald eagles, um, that would be the value. Good news, end of story. The work is now sitting uh, in the Museum of Modern Art here in New York, and the estate didn't have to pay any estate taxes. They also weren't able to get a charitable deduction, so uh, good news. I would say um, the, the best case scenario when you're dealing with these kinds of materials is to deal with the headache in vivos in life when you have um, the capacity to kind of 
come up with with creative solutions, whether it's gifting the ivory without charitable deductions. Um, some jurisdictions do permit this, although you probably, you know, it's it's not uh, permissible to move things across uh, state lines for the most part. Uh, in terms of theft, uh, restitution, especially thinking about World War II restitution, is still very much happening. Um, we have a very active practice here at Sotheby's, so it's important to think about the artwork if it was created before, you know, 1933 to 1945, and in continental Europe. Make sure that you have sort of a provenance tied up there. Um, we are still seeing things that have been restituted. <laughs> being sold. These are two uh, interesting works that recently sold actually in this year in March and January. Um, some fascinating stories. I would say for the Bronzino, uh, we were actually able to, um, that's the, the work of the gentleman in the, in the black coat, uh, to attribute the work to, to Bronzino and actually achieved um, a world record price um, for, for nearly a million dollars with all of the proceeds um, going um, to charities to support Holocaust survivors. So that's that's a very good story. Um, and you know, I think that you know, the the world of World War II restitution is is fascinating. But unfortunately, again, talking about people that have the knowledge, um, much of that information is gone. And so there's there's a lot to be to be said in terms of current litigation and negotiations. So let's talk now about what to do with the art when you have an estate administration situation when um, you know you've already been living with the art legacy in your lifetime i think it's important um to think about a lot of questions and you know i think as lawyers we tend to ask questions and that really will lead um how you deal with the art in the estate so I think the first major question is, is it a federally taxable estate? I'm sure, you know, we all know now the lifetime exemption is currently set for 12.9 million per married person. And then you are um, obliged at the top rate to have a 40% estate tax rate. Um, for non-US persons, you might trigger the federal estate tax if you have art within um, the U.S. jurisdiction, um, and if it's here, let's say, in a, in a cousin's apartment or whatever, and it's important to note that the um, exemption for um, non-resident aliens for art or other assets is just 60K, so it's quite a low threshold when you're talking about um, important art. So if it's a federal taxable state, and then, of course, states have different um, tax levels to think about as well. In New York here, we have the odd cliff, but it's important to note the timeline if you do have any sales um, and given the required 706 filing deadline. So that is either um, nine months or the alternative date, which would be 15 months after date. Even if there is an extension, um, the values, so if you're going for the 15 month, will need to be provided at nine months post death and, and, and and payment um, anticipated then. So I will say when you're dealing with high net worth um, persons that have multiple residents and lots of different kinds of categories of property, um, that time can go by very fast, especially with when their volume and, and research and all the things that we've been talking about, that can be quite um, onerous. So, so make a note of that. I mean, the other thing is to think about sort of the scope 
of the required estate tax appraisals. So are you going to list every, you know, teaspoon and, and saucer, or are you going to focus on, you know, more important things over the 50K threshold that, they, that the panel might be looking at? So it's important to have sort of a clear approach. Of course, for estate tax purposes, all of your tangible assets must be included in the appraisal, but you can think about how to structure um, the actual report. And then going back to where we started, sort of what were the decedent's wishes regarding the tangibles and the art? Um, how did they paper the distribution of the assets? Were there specific bequests? Um, something to think about when you're doing specific bequests is back to the valuations issue. Is there an equalizer or was it that you wanted, you know, one particular daughter to have this painting because she always admired it? And that's okay too, because our is uh, unique and rare, except if we're talking about multiples of the same print. Um, and then, you know, if it's not formally written, which can be written and also is not always binding, but might be a good idea, would be sort of what we call like a letter of wishes or intentions. And that's a great way to indicate to the fiduciaries and the executors and the trustees kind of how you would like for your art assets to be handled. Um, but what did they say in their lifetime? Often, unfortunately, you know, we get the the scenario where, you know, the daughter calls and says, my mom said this is very, very valuable and it just, it just isn't. So that, that can happen as well. Um, understanding like how is the, the ownership of, of the property held? So is there a trust, um, an LLC? And then, you know, who's around? Is there a surviving spouse? Does she want the art um, or, or not? I mean, these are all things to think about. Are there children? And then, of course, when you're thinking about um, probate, where is the property actually located? Is it in different jurisdictions mm -hmm. within the U.S. or countries? Does that trigger any ancillary probate? So get your ducks in the row. Get all your papers mm -hmm. together. Hopefully that has already happened. Make sure the insurance is in place. Um, secure the, the locations. Also check condition. I'm always kind of shocked you come in and everything is, is quite a mess. But... Is it stable? Do things need to be cleaned as a fiduciary or conserved? How will that impact value? Because obviously condition is, is one factor. Um, is the estate illiquid? I mean, there's there's lots of options in terms of art lending. Would that be preferable to get a to use the art as collateral for bridge loan for potential sale, depending upon the timing? Um, and you know, when does the estate tax deadline fall if there will be sales? So it's still quite traditional in the terms that the marquee sailways, the most valuable art is sold in New York in uh, November and May. And that's just, I mean, there are alternative times to sell things, but that's pretty much the standard. And then of course, thinking about philanthropy, like was that part of the plan? Have there been conversations with museums in lifetime? Hopefully yes. If not, was there a list of museums that might be a good fit? And then, of course, you require the uh, applicable um, uh, charitable gift tax donations. And then just pitfalls, you know, I think it's key. I'll just leave you with a couple of, of thoughts. But to remember that art is a very emotional asset. It's not like, you know, your Apple stock. I think people could be uh, <laughs> quite attached to their iPhones, but art is different. Please don't leave art to the end of the estate administration process. As I've tried to articulate, there's lots of twists and turns and it can be very complicated and take a lot of time. Don't assume certain art is valuable or not without checking with the experts. 
um, know which works require authentication, um, you know, work with, you know, an international auction house or someone who knows what they're doing. Also the same for regulated materials. Um, don't try to leave these problems to your, to your children. Um, try to be transparent, you know, so don't take out expensive art or jewelry out of the probate process. We used to call this empty hook estate planning. Um, try to align the heirs so they know, like they agree on the best way forward. Are you going to sell everything? Is everything going to be gifted? I mean, of course, can't always avoid disputes, but often we find that there is sort of um, fighting between siblings and heirs over the art. I think it's always a great idea to start with the top in terms of like the international auction house to assess the collection. They can always make recommendations and actually um, empower you to get better service if it's not a good fit through their connections. Um, and then, I mean, we haven't even talked about selling, but that's a whole um, trying to understand what is the best way to deal with the art. Is it a private sale? Is it auction live or online? I will say auction is always a great option for those with a fiduciary duty because it's the most transparent. Understanding the different venues where to sell if something should be sold in Italy or uh, Paris or London or New York. I think it's really important to understand that. And then how to maximize the sort of estate aspect through storytelling the family's legacy or anonymity, if that is best for this piece, really trying to be strategic and thoughtful in dealing with the estate property. Um, and I'll, with that, I'll turn it back to Jonathan. Thank you, Sherry, for that informative talk on a practical guide on the life cycle of planning for art collections. A big takeaway for me is how many considerations there are when buying or selling art. When most people hear that a work of art was sold for a large sum of money, we think, wow, that person must be wealthy. But there are so many more factors from both the buyer and the seller of why they decided to sell the work of art and how they arrived at the price. This includes who the artist may be, the type of work, work of art, trends in the market, valuations, tax and estate planning implications, if relevant, and so much more. I feel like we just scratched the surface in this talk, but if you are in the market to buy or sell art or represent somebody who is in the market, then it's important to familiarize yourself with the various areas discussed here today. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.